Today we're going to begin a study in the book of Malachi. Malachi simply means my messenger. Malachi was called by God to take his message to the people of Israel after Israel had returned from exile in Babylon. Malachi prophesied in the early 5th century BC, a few decades after the temple, the second temple, had been built. And it's fascinating that in this book, Malachi speaks both about John the Baptist and about Jesus. So if you go to chapter 3 with me and look at verse 1, it says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So God, through Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, predicts Not only the Messiah, but he also predicts John, who would be the forerunner, the one who would prepare the way. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple is clearly another reference to Jesus. Now, when Malachi preached this, because he he didn't write it and sort of sell it as a book, this was a message, this was an oracle, this was the burden that God had placed on Malachi's heart, and he went around preaching this message. So when people would have heard this message, particularly these words, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, people would have stopped dead in their tracks. That, that message would have been absolutely arresting for people. They would, have, they would have turned and they would have paid attention. And the question is, why? Why do I say that and why do I believe it's true? Well, to understand the answer to that question, we need to do a little bit of, a little bit of history. So uh, let's think about the history of Israel for a second. As you know, God had judged the 10 tribes of Israel using the Assyrians in 722 and dispersed them to the nations and they are lost to history. Judah and Benjamin sort of took on the moniker of the kingdom of Israel or the kingdom of Judah and they continued on for another many years. But in 606 BC under the power of Nebuchadnezzar, Uh, Judah, Jerusalem, and the kingdom of Israel came under the control of Babylon. The king was appointed by the king of Babylon. And things were fine for a while until the next king came along. His name was Zerubbabel. No, Zedekiah, I think. Yes, Zedekiah. And he rebelled against Babylon. He rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. So in 586 BC, the armies of Babylon came and they sacked the city, they destroyed the temple, and they ended the worship of the God of Israel in the temple in Jerusalem. A bunch of people were taken into exile, and the worship of God stopped, essentially. Then in 539 BC, the Persian Empire defeated the Babylonian Empire, and Cyrus the Great the king that Isaiah had prophesied about a couple hundred years before this came to the throne. A year later, in 538, he allowed about 40,000 Jews to go back to Jerusalem with the express purpose of rebuilding the temple. And so that process began, but it was a slow process. And if you read the books of Haggai and Zechariah, you will see that the people were not excited about building the temple. They weren't excited about giving offerings to build a temple. But finally, under the prompting of these prophets, in 516 B.C., 
the temple was rebuilt and it was rededicated. Exact, as, as Jeremiah said, exactly 70 years after the exile began and the worship of God stopped in Jerusalem, 586, 516 BC, the worship of God started again in Jerusalem, as the prophet had indicated would happen. But it wasn't long before covenant unfaithfulness began to manifest itself again in the lives of the people. The issues that had caused the exile in the first place began to manifest themselves again in the lives of Israel after the second temple had been dedicated. Some of the problems that were happening. The priesthood had become corrupt. Divorce was rampant. Jews were intermarrying with the pagan culture around them. Worship was being trivialized. Tithing had stopped. Immorality was widespread among the people of Israel. And social justice was being absolutely ignored by the people of Israel. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, why? Why after the Babylonian conquest and all of the lives that were lost, why after the Babylonian captivity and all of the pain of those many, many years in captivity, why? Why did the people of Israel slip back into covenantal unfaithfulness, the same kind of unfaithfulness that characterized them prior to God's judgment in 586? Why did they fall back into sin? I think the reason, I think the reason is this. It was rooted in their unfulfilled expectations. They had expected that when the new temple was dedicated in 516 B.C., that the glory cloud of God's presence would once again descend upon the temple and that physical manifestation of God's living presence with his people would be seen as it was seen 500 years before this when Solomon dedicated the temple initially. They had believed that when the Spirit of God, that the Spirit of God would return to the temple and introduce an age of blessing and prosperity and freedom and peace to Israel. So in 516 BC, the Lord whom they had hoped would suddenly return to his temple hadn't. And the people of God were disappointed with God. The people of God had become disillusioned with God. The people of God had become angry with God because God had not done what they wanted him to do, what they expected him to do. And so as a consequence, they were sliding once again into nominalism and compromise and sin The reality is, the truth is that it's easy for us to become disillusioned with God. And maybe you're here today and you're struggling with this, this issue. You're disappointed by God. You are some, perhaps you wouldn't admit it, but some of you are angry with him. You're frustrated because you have been praying and he's not doing what you want him to do. He hasn't treated you in your mind, fairly or justly or equitably or kindly. And you're wondering, where is this loving God? 
Our prodigal kids haven't come back to the Lord. We had a huge financial setback, a bad diagnosis. We weren't accepted at the school that we desperately wanted to get into. Our career is stalled. We want to be married, or we want to be, have kids, or we want to retire. And God's saying, no, or not now, and we're bugged. The reality is that disillusioned, disappointed, angry, frustrated Christians will be compromised Christians. If there's any illustration that makes that clear, it's the people of Israel. A couple of generations ago, they suffered horrifically in 586 when Nebuchadnezzar came. He tried to be magnanimous. He tried to be good. He tried to be kind to them. He brought them under the hegemony of, of, of Babylon and said, look, I'll appoint your king, but you guys can live your life, and let's just everybody be happy until Israel rebelled. And then he came with a vengeance. So, so why would they have turned back to their sin, knowing that this was God's judgment in their lives? Well, the answer is that retribution never produces holiness. The, the threat of retribution from God, the threat of even consequences, doesn't produce holiness. So how do we respond? How do we respond when God doesn't do what we, for us what we expect him or want him to do? How do we respond when we are not receiving what we think we deserve to receive? How do we respond when God's plan is not what we expect? And how do we guard against becoming disillusioned? Because if you are disillusioned, if you're a grumpy Christian, you're going to be a sinful Christian. Well, there's three things in this passage of Scripture I want to point out very quickly. First thing is this. We must rest in God's particular love for us. Look at verse 2 of this passage again. God says to his people, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. That's a powerful statement. The people are saying, like, I don't think you love me. I can't see it. Our expectations haven't been filled. Therefore, you can't love me. You can't love us. And God's saying here, look, I love you. I love you. And if you want an illustration, if you want to see how that is, understand this. I chose you. I set my love upon you. When those two brothers... Paul says it in, in Romans chapter 9, we're in the womb. Before either of them had done anything good or bad, God set his love on Jacob. The Lord reminded them of his unconditional, absolute, unwavering love for them. God knew that the root of Israel's problem with disillusionment and discouragement and anger and resentment 
was the fact that they had forgotten his particular love for them. It's absolutely imperative that when we're living our lives and things don't go well or don't go as we think they should, that we remind ourselves again and again and again of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to flip over there because I think this passage says it more clearly that perhaps than anywhere else in the, in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 1, and Paul says this in verse 3. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. In his love, he predestined us. In his grace, he chose us. And he set his particular love upon us. Folks, you would not be here. You would not be in Christ. You would not be thinking the thoughts that you think right now were it not for the particular love of Jesus. You wouldn't be experiencing the blessing of knowing that your sins are forgiven. You wouldn't have a confidence that Christ is with you. you. You would know nothing about the saving grace of Jesus experientially were it not for the particular love of Jesus for you. He chose you before the foundation of the world and he chose to set his love upon you and he chose to redeem you. He chose to die in your stead to take God's wrath for your sin upon himself. He chose to quicken you and bring you to spiritual life in in either the latter part of the 20th century or the first part of the 21st century and he has committed committed to you to bring you into his presence holy and perfect and present you to the Father as part of this beautiful bride that he will one day save. You need to know that. And we struggle with it and we wonder about it and we question it. Folks, just fall into it. Just relax into it. God chose you. He set his love upon you. You are precious. He loves you unconditionally with a with with a love that will never, ever let you go. And regardless of what happens in this life, he will present you to the Father, perfect, complete. You'll be with them forever. You gotta rest there. You gotta rest there. I think the first key to dealing with unmet expectations is to remember that despite what circumstances tell you, God loves you. And you can, look at your, you can look at God through the lens of your circumstances and look at him suspiciously. Look at him with sort of that jaded look. Yeah, you love me. Sure you do. Or you can look at your circumstances through the perfect prism of the love of God, which allows you to understand that you can rest there. You can just, it's okay it's okay. I'm struggling in my career. I have a bad diagnosis. I haven't found Mrs. or Mr. Right yet. We're struggling to get pregnant. We're wrestling with our finances. And the list goes on and on and on. You can rest there because God loves you. 
personally, individually, uniquely. Who could bring a charge against God's elect, Paul asks halfway through the book of Romans. He just finished talking about the gospel, unpacking the gospel, talking about the amazing nature of the love of God in Christ for us. And he says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? If he didn't spare his only son but gave him up for us all, how will he also with him not freely give us all things? He's given you his son. Do you not think that he knows what's best? Can you rest there? He sacrificed his son to purchase you. You are a treasure. You are valuable. Just rest in the love of God. Secondly, continue to pursue authentic worship. I want to read this section again, 6 through 10, because I think it's important. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? Come on, God, quit being so petty. And the answer of you, that's, that was just me right there. <laughs> Good <word. laughs> By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table is to be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? When you say, when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, he will show favor Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there was one among you, listen, who would shut the door that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. God asked the question, if I'm a father, if I'm a master, where is my honor and where is my respect? He says, the priests, you have despised my name. And they say, how? How are we despising your name? And God answers very clearly. You're offering blind and crippled and defective animals. I called for perfect lambs, right? Unblemished lambs. And you're giving me your discards. You're giving me the worst of the flock. You're giving me the worthless animals. And the priests were responding. Basically, you know, anything you want to bring is fine. Just glad you're here. Glad you're here. Doesn't matter what what you're bringing, just come on in. Second-rate worship, that's great for our second-rate God. It's important to notice they were still worshiping, right? They hadn't stopped worshiping God. But it was apathetic, it was nominal, it was half-hearted. It reflected an attitude, a a, a diminished, shrunken view of God. Small view of God, a lessened view of God. So Malachi says, look, try approaching your governor that way. Try, try approaching someone in authority that way and see what happens. 
Will he accept you? Will he show you favor? Will he be responsive to that kind of half-hearted, pathetic offering? Of course, the answer is no. Of course not. He won't. God says, well, then why would you offer that to me? Verse 6, he talks about God being despised in the worship. The word there means to hold in contempt or to regard as worthless. So the worship was what it was because their view of God was what it was. Right? Their worship was what it was because their view of God was diminished. God had somehow shrunk in their thinking. God had been belittled. Somehow he had become disparaged. Why? Well, he wasn't doing for them what they, sh- they, they thought he should be doing. You see, their perception of God was based on God living up to their expectations. When God does for me what I think he should do for me, then I will worship him because he's great. He's a great God because he's made me wealthy and healthy and I've gotten into the right school and everything's going swimmingly and I met Mr. Right and and I found Mrs. Right and, and life is good. And because my life is good, God is good. But they were disparaging God. And so what's the solution? What's the answer? I think the answer is invest in genuine worship until you see the greatness of God again. Come to that place where you honestly invest in worship until you begin to see clearly the greatness and the magnificence and the glory and the awesomeness of the God who we worship. And just coming to worship doesn't accomplish that. It's authentic, it's genuine worship that brings us face to face with the reality of the true God. True worship reveals his true worth, his true glory, and his true magnificence. It gives us a perspective that allows us to see genuinely and authentically who he really is. And so what God says next in this passage of Scripture is truly shocking. He says, oh my gosh, I just wish there was somebody among you, just one person in Israel who would have the guts and just go to the temple and shut the door and say, enough of this facade. Enough of this charade. It's enough. Let's not do this anymore. Let's stop it. You see, the Lord would prefer not to be worshipped than to be worshipped by people who only worship him because they think he's going to accomplish for them what they want him to do. You know why the prosperity gospel is so horrible? Because that's the foundation of it. That's the foundation of it. Come to Jesus, and he's going to do everything for you. He's a great God. He'll make you wealthy. He'll make you healthy. He'll find you the perfect husband. It's just going to be awesome. You're going to have children. You're going to find that amazing wife that, you know, Christian Mingle hasn't popped up yet. And he's great. And as long as you've got all that, it's, oh, man, God is great. God is so good. I just love God. But as soon as it gets tough, Oh, man, God stinks. Man, I just can't stand this God anymore. I still kind of believe, but, man, I'm not going to go to church. Why, you know, why sacrifice for him? He hasn't sacrificed for me. And that's the foundation of the thinking 
of this prosperity gospel. It's spreading like wildfire around the world, and it's straight out of hell. So how do we counter that? How do we stop that? Well, we worship. We worship God for who he is. We worship God for who he is. See, worship isn't for us primarily. It's not about us. It's not to make us happy. It's not to meet our needs. It's not to get our toes tapping. Worship is for God. That's why we come here on a Sunday morning. We come here for him, to glorify him, to extol his greatness, to to create an environment into which the spirit of God longs to rush. And when that kind of environment is created, when, when we honestly are here, genuinely, the bride of Christ, seeking to know the bride, seeking is it the bridegroom, seeking to see him high and lifted up, seeking to get another glimpse of his greatness and his glory, something amazing happens in our midst. And that's something, somebody's enjoying it. <laughs> that's something is that we're brought face to face with God. You see, the worship in Malachi's day was attractional. It was man-centric. And I wonder what it would be like if we required pastors like me to prepare sermons, to prepare services, to orchestrate worship in such a way that the only person that we were trying to attract was the presence of the living God. What would our services be like? What would, the, what would the experience be like? I'll tell you one thing. We'd have clarity about the nature, the character, the love, the greatness, the magnificence of God. And so let me just encourage you. I used to be involved in a church where people came late to, to worship. Never happens here. But I used to be involved in a church. <laughs> where people came late. And I would say to them, don't come late to church because together we, we coalesce into this beautiful purchased bride and we sing to our Savior and we worship him and we extol him and we come anticipating that in that environment when we are worshiping for him, he will reveal himself to us in his greatness, in his glory, in his magnificence, in his love, and change our hearts, and our values, and our perspective, and our thinking, and our walk for his glory, and ultimately our blessing. I'm just glad that you guys come on time, so I wouldn't have to say anything like that to you. And lastly, lastly, remember God has an amazing plan for your life. I just love how interspersed through this passage of Scripture, I don't know if you noticed it when Josiah was reading it, but there's this sense that God isn't going to be stopped. Like Israel is at its lowest ebb possible, right? Like they're barely hanging on by their fingernails, and listen to what the prophet said, verse 5. Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. Verse 11, read it with me. 
For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations. Get down to verse 14 at the end. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. My name will be great. My name will be feared. Incense will be burnt. I will be famous in the nations. That's the promise of the last words of the Old Testament. When everything seems bleak, when the experiment of Israel had completely burnt out, be a holy people, a people set apart, a people of my law, people of Yahweh, and as just this step, from the time of Solomon, just a steady slide into apostasy and sin and apathy and nominalism and worldliness. And here the prophet's saying, you can't stop God. There's no way in the world, four times in this one chapter, God is going to be famous, and he will not be stopped. And their response, verse 13, is, oh, gosh, this is so boring, and a snort of derision. But God's plan was much greater than their desires. They wanted the glory cloud. We didn't get the glory cloud. Solomon had the glory cloud. We're ticked off. We didn't get the glory cloud. Man, think about what God was up to. 400 and some odd years later, the incarnate Yahweh gets on a donkey and rides down a hill from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. And no one had a clue what was going on, but I'll tell you what was going on. The Lord whom they sought suddenly came to his temple. And a week later, the world was changed forever. Jesus went to the cross. The son of the living God, the sinless one, went to the cross. He took your sin and mine upon himself. God punished him for my sin. He gave me his perfect, holy righteousness that qualifies me right now to go into the presence of God. He birthed the church, and he's been in the process the last 2,000 years of transforming this world. Today, they say that probably 150,000 people will come to the Lord Jesus Christ as the gospel is preached around the world. He is building his church, and he cannot be stopped. We are an unstoppable force. That's, that's so encouraging. That's so encouraging. But what's true on a macro level is also true on a micro level too, right? What God is doing in the world, what he's been doing in the last 2,000 years, he's doing personally in your life. That's why Paul says that we know this, that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things. All things. Does that really mean all things, Paul? You mean my infertility? You mean that I'm a bachelor at 40 and I can't find that girl? You mean that my financial situation which just imploded? You mean that I had all things. My disappointments. My diagnosis. All things work together for good? And the answer is yes. Yes. God is at work even in our disappointments. He is sovereignly, graciously working out a plan in your life. 
Does he allow suffering? Does he allow setbacks? Does he allow pain? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. But one day you will see the big picture. One of my heroes died a couple, well, died on Friday, Tim Keller. I, uh, I'd heard him preach in New York, I think it was like 2017, it was the Sunday of thank, their, their Thanksgiving Sunday, and I went to his church, and he stands up in the pulpit, and I know that next Sunday I'm beginning an, a Christmas series in Matthew chapter 1, and he says, let's turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, shall we? And I think, oh boy, I'm going to hear Tim Keller preach the sermon that I'm going to preach next week. And I listened to him preach, and I just wanted to give up preaching. I just wanted to quit right then and there. And I've read his books, and I, I, I listen to him on, online, and I watch him on YouTube, and he just encourages my soul. Like, pastors like me need that kind of stuff because we don't have people generally to preach to us. Although I was just so blessed this last weekend to have three sermons that just really enriched my heart at the, I call it the, George, uh, the uh, GCC Pastors Wives and Interlopers Retreat. I, I'm the interloper, my wife and I. But it was so good. And then on Friday, he died. And I'm thinking, God, what are you up to here? Like, this guy was young. And he was so capable. What an evangelist. He, like, his ministry, my brother-in-law, who lives in New York, came to faith. Saved out of alcohol, alcoholism and drug abuse through this man's life. His ministry and his testimony and his work and his church and all that God had used him to do. Why in the world, Lord, would you take him? Right now in heaven, Tim Keller sees the big picture. He knows exactly why. And I don't question. I shouldn't. Maybe I do. But I, I shouldn't because I, I, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that, that God loves me and he loves his church and we can rest there. And I know beyond any shadow of a doubt that as I keep worshiping and I keep seeing him for who he is, I will have that perspective. That he is in control and that he is good and he is working out his plan. And if I ever need any encouragement that that is true, I just think about this. I just think about Malachi. And the promise he made and the fact that Jesus came and the fact that Jesus today is transforming our world person by person by person by person. And he will not stop until the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea for his glory. So we can just rest. We can rest. Being disillusioned with God is just simply a, ref, a reflection. It's a testimony. It's a confession that you don't know God. So let me pray for you right now if you are in that place. Let me just pray for you, okay? Father God, there may be people, I don't know, but there may be a man, a woman, a young person in this church right now whose perspective of you is jaded and twisted and distorted. And out of that comes disappointment and discouragement and frustration, questions. Father, I pray that by your grace as they worship, as they spend time in your word, that you would give them just this overwhelming overwhelmingly beautiful picture of who you are, the great king of glory, the sovereign king of the universe, the savior, the one who reigns right now and is subduing his enemies. Lord, you call us to go through suffering. You call us to go through disappointments and difficulties. 
But Lord, with our face upon you, your purposes are accomplished both in our lives in terms of character, but also in terms of what you're doing in this world. So Lord, be high and lifted up in our lives all the time. Let us keep our focus upon you, the author and the perfecter of our faith, and live that life of love and gladness and joy and enthusiasm as we serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.